What's going on, everybody? This is Ryan Henry, and welcome to 180, where we get to share amazing stories of Christian transformation from around the world. These stories will literally blow your mind. Follow us on your favorite podcast player, or you can visit us at 180podcast.com. That's O-N-E-80podcast.com. Today's show mentions abuse. Folks, Shahi's show is so powerful. We had her read her own soliloquy. Welcome to Shahi's 180. I was born in 1967 in Kabul, Afghanistan. I have an Afghan father and an American mother. I have a citizen born abroad birth certificate. I was born with a dual citizenship. I was spiritually born again in 1995. I have a heavenly father and an eternal home. I have a savior and his name is Jesus. This is my testimony of leaving Islam and becoming a Christian and living a new life in Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today on 180, Shahi. It's so exciting to have you today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, your story is really amazing. And folks, that is the beginning of Shahi's book. She has several, but this one is Born Afghan, Born American, Born Again. Um, And that is the beginning of her book. So we're talking about your 180 today on our show. With every show, we like to start at the beginning. Your beginning is in Kabul. Yes. Uh, My mother was an American going to Afghanistan to have her very first baby. We think I was premature. I was sent home with my parents and told that they should keep everyone away from me, that my lungs were weak, and that if they wanted me to survive, I needed to be kept away from all other people. And so that's how I started. And then we came back to America before my first birthday. I had gotten pneumonia, and they needed the medical treatment and the doctors over here. Wow. Okay, so you were there for a year, and you moved to the U.S. at a year old. So you don't even remember Kabul? No, no. Okay. You do talk in the book about being very much entrenched in the Afghan culture. So can you tell us what it was like to be Afghan in the U.S.? Yes. My parents were very, very involved in our mosque. We were in a state in the north, and we were surrounded by other Afghans and other people in the Muslim community. We participated and did everything within our community bounds. We did not participate a lot with Americans around us and our neighbors and things like that. As children, my brother and I were allowed to play with other Muslim children and not with necessarily American children with the exception of my father's job. But growing up in America with a Muslim parent and my mother had converted to Islam, we went to Arabic school. We went to what would be the equivalent of the Muslim version of Sunday school, where you had your religious lessons. My brother and I were taught to read in Arabic the Quran and also to recite chapters by memorization. People say it's so hard to memorize Bible verses. But, you know, when you were 
brought up to learn chapters of the Quran in Arabic. We learned it because if you didn't, you got hit with rulers. And so we would learn our Quran and uh, we were very obedient because my father was one of the leaders in our local mosque and in our Afghan community. Wow. What don't people know about the Afghan culture? especially the Afghan culture in the U.S. or just in general, what don't we know about it? Mostly that there's a difference between a Persian culture and an Arabic culture. Folks who are from Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the smaller countries around Saudi Arabia, that has an Arabic background. But Iran and Afghanistan, they're Persians for the most part. And a Persian culture is different in the way that, for example, the way the women would wear their headdress or how they would approach holidays or how they would make their food or their language, things like that. So our home was Persian and our going to the mosque was in Arabic because you only do everything in Arabic. Your prayers are done in Arabic, things like that. So I can converse in Farsi, but I cannot converse in Arabic, but I can read and write in Arabic. So you basically no three languages. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. So you were very much insulated in your your culture. Did you have any inklings of Christianity? I thought I remembered that your family had some Christian background. My grandmother was a Christian and very sweet and very gentle in the way she would approach things. And so I went one day in my youth as probably a third or fourth grader to a vacation Bible school. And at the time, I didn't understand any of it. Wow. What did you think of Christianity? It's funny. When you're a child in Islam, you don't really have your own opinion. You are sort of drilled into Christians are wrong. You don't want to talk about Jesus. Jesus is a nice teacher, but he's not somebody that we're supposed to study or or learn about. Uh, We're supposed to respect all the holy books, knowing that the Bible is corrupt. So that kind of contradiction was something that causes little girls like me to ask lots of questions. Because how do you respect something, but it's corrupt? And so we were taught that the the Quran was the, the word of Allah, and that's all we would do. So Christianity for me was people who did the wrong thing, people okay. who were against Allah in the Quran. Hey friends, make sure to share 180 with your people. It may be the best news they hear today. Now, back to the show. That feeling like the Bible was corrupt. I've heard that being a teaching in some Islam cultures. Um, What would you say to Muslims who believe that the Bible is corrupt, knowing what you know now? Knowing what I know now, that all scriptures God breathed, it's the loveliest, most wonderful book you could ever pick up. And if you ask God, help me to read this, he will genuinely open your eyes and help you to read things in there that are never contradictory. He has built in my heart more and more layers of the loveliness of his word. If I had no other possession that I would carry every day, it would be my Bible. That's awesome. It's like peeling the layers of an onion, right? You just keep peeling and there's more. There's more. It just gets richer and richer and richer the more you get into the Word. And more connected and more Mm -hmm. entwined. And the more I learn, the more I want to know. And it amazes me 
how God will allow me to to get to know him in his word. And I love that part. I love that intimacy. At a young age, you found a Bible in your home. Yes, my mother was actually baptized. She said that she went forward during vacation Bible school when she was a child and got baptized. They presented her a white leather Bible. But when I found the Bible as a child, you could tell that it was a book that had never really actually been even opened. You know how you open a brand new Bible and it just crackles and the pretty gold pages go through your fingers? Well, mm-hmm. those pages had been stuck together for so long that they did not want to open. I found that Bible and my mother dismissed it. She said, oh, that's just the Bible. And see, in, in Islam, you never lay a Bible on the floor or a Quran on the floor that would be dishonoring. So for her to just have it on a shelf and not wrapped up in a piece of cloth and put up on a high shelf like we do with the Quran showed that there was no respect for it. So it was just another book. Okay. I would ask here what you believed about your faith, but it seems like there was no space really to disbelieve your faith. You just obeyed at this point in your life. I was an extremely obedient child. You did what your father said. You thought your father was always right. Your father taught you what you were supposed to know to a point where you'd say that your dad had all the answers. But then you get a little bit older and you'd start asking questions. In the beginning, the questions might be real simple. And then older, it got to the point of, I'd say, hey, dad, why do we, as Muslims, why do we go to Hajj? Why do we march around? What if we accidentally went the wrong direction? So you're supposed to go one way. And I thought, what if somebody went the other way? What happens to them? And then he would look at me like I was silly. And one day I said, Dad, why do they throw rocks off of the cliff at Satan? I said, what if Satan was to come and throw the rock back at them? And a lot of times he'd say, go away. Why do you ask me so many questions? And that was the type of response. If he didn't have an answer, he just sent me away. And I was sent away not satisfied. And that type of response for a girl who was getting educated in the American system was hard because it was like a conflict. I've always said that dual citizenship, I literally had my feet in two different worlds all through my growing up to where when I was home, I was in this Muslim world where where men were in charge, but I'd go to school and I would learn things. And then I'd come back home and say, dad, you know, why do you hate Jewish people? And my dad would say, I just do. And I'd be like, but don't you have a reason? Uh, you don't know a Jewish person. And my, my dad would say, well, they stole our land. And I would sit there thinking, but dad, you're from Afghanistan. So you had your Christian grandma, but there were other inklings of Jesus in your life at a young age. Can you tell us about El Greco, the painting? I was fifth grade and we were on a field trip to the museum and we were studying different artists and I came around this corner. You can just read it because it's really cool the way you wrote it. There was one particular painting that sticks out in my memory. It was El Greco. He had painted elongated figures with dark colors and dark stories. I remember looking up at this very large painting and wondering what that man did to be hanging on the cross with people gathered around at his feet. He was bloodied and bruised with his eyes turned upward. His face was in pain and the people below knew it. I remember thinking, why don't they get him down? 
I didn't know or intimately understand who that man was, but I did somehow sense that he was an important person that should not have to suffer what he was suffering. The title of the painting revealed that it was Jesus on the cross, but I thought the life of Jesus was a gift. If life is a gift, then how can life of suffering be a gift? really powerful. And I've seen El Greco. It's a very strong image. Um, and it, the colors he used were so vibrant. And um, just, I really picture that. So um, cool. And so as I grew up, there were inklings of not being whole or having a lacking that mm-hmm. I needed filled. And that question was always hanging. There was always one more unanswered question. In school, I would be a part of the debate team, or I was a part of different groups that, like a humanities class where we got to learn about art and languages and things like that. And I loved that type of thing. And I had friends in there that would constantly talk to me about Jesus. So they're trying to convert me, and I'm trying to tell them about Islam and how they need to be converted to Islam. And so we would go round and round, passing information back and forth. One of the times that my parents were very distracted in their world, I asked my dad, can I go sleep over at a a friend's house? And it was an American girl. And he said, yeah, go. And I was a senior in high school, and the first time I get to sleep over in an American's house. And so we went to her house. Her mom put us in the car, drove us to a little church, and we got in a van. We drove to another church that got into a bigger van and eventually to a bus, and we drove to this other church. And it was my first time walking into a church. I was about uh, 17. I was actually at a youth event, but I didn't know that. And it was in a gym. They had pizza and games, and everyone was having fun. And I thought I was in freedom land. I thought it was the best thing I'd ever done. And at the very end, he said, We've had a lot of fun here, but there's something that I'd like to share with you. And as soon as this pastor started to tell us about Jesus, there was a part in my heart that just didn't know how to battle my two worlds. My heart was pounding. I was thinking, God, what should I do? This man's talking about Jesus. We're not supposed to learn that. The Bible's corrupt. I have this part of me that is screaming, You shouldn't be listening to this. This is bad. But then there was another part of me that was soaking up everything this pastor was saying. And he was talking about truth and who Jesus is. And the very core of my being was thinking, this man is right. Wow. And I wanted what this man was talking about. My head was saying one thing, but my heart was wanting to jump out and go towards this man that was saying these things. But I froze because you just don't do something like that. You don't step out of your boundaries that are very firmly set in Islam. Even though I wanted what that man had, I was too frightened to step forward to go and get that. And bless their sweethearts, these people in this church had no idea what to do with this little Muslim girl that was crying. 
and wanting what they had. I went away from there, I believe with the Lord knowing how much I wanted him and me not knowing how to express that, that I desired what that man said, but I didn't know what to do with what I had just heard. Yeah, you said in your book that you had wished there was a counselor to explain the gospel to you and what that meant there, someone to answer your questions. And you said that throughout the book, that it took a long time for you to get to people who could answer your questions. Exactly. Even though English is my first language now, there are vocabulary words that you don't understand. The words like salvation. I've never heard that. I don't even know what that word is in Arabic because that's not a word I grew up with. There are words like, come and see a counselor. For me, crazy people see counselors. I didn't need a counselor. What I needed was someone to understand that even though words were being spoken to me, God's words were piercing my heart, but man's words, I didn't understand. I didn't know how to get that very thing that they were talking about. And it was truth and it was Jesus, but I couldn't even express that. And so I really had wished that there was somebody who knew how to minister to me to answer some questions. At that moment, before my adulthood, because I was going to enter into things I was unprepared for, and I needed to know who he was. Yeah. So let's go back to high school, and you were talking about your debate team. Talk about the other inklings, because there were some men that you got to know really well that were Christians, and tell us about that interaction with them. There was a couple of guys, John and Tim specifically, that would constantly tell me about Jesus and how much Jesus loved me, how much I needed him, how much he had died on the cross for my sins. And I would think, these guys are nuts. I didn't want to be around them. I'd set my tray down, and they'd come and sit over near me at school, and I'd pick my tray up, and I'd move, because I thought, I can't take these guys today. In my pride, I thought, they'll convert right away. Islam is so great. When they didn't convert, I got frustrated, and I started to avoid them. But they kept talking about Jesus and kept talking about how wonderful he is and truth and light. And I kept hearing these things, but I didn't want to deal with truth. And at that time, what I did not realize was these young men were part of a prayer group and they picked 10 people that they were going to specifically pray for them to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I was the only girl on that list of 10 people. And all these years later, when I got saved and everything else happening in my life, I always thought I would see them in eternity someday, maybe tap them on the shoulder and say, guess who's here? And they would be so surprised. But I had contacted them on Facebook and got hold of them and expressed what had happened to me and got to tell them, guess what? I talked to Tim first and he was so joyous. I had John on Facebook within probably an hour. I thought I wouldn't see them until eternity. But God has bigger plans. John's a pastor, and I've shared my testimony in his church. Oh, and that's so awesome. Tim works in the youth department. I've got to share at his church. That's awesome. So, Shahi, you said that it, it was really great that these guys ministered to you and talked to you so much, even though you were trying to witness to them yourself to try to convert them. 
they really did speak a lot of truth in your life, and you said you were going to need it later. So you hadn't come to a saving faith at this point, but they certainly gave you a lot of seeds. So what happens next after high school? Right before I graduated, I was in a car accident, and that really was a turning point for me because the Muslim girl, we don't go alone ever with a young man. That just simply does not happen. You can bring shame on your family, just simply with a reputation. And so in my school, I had missed the activity bus and I did not drive. And so I didn't know what I should do. There was a snowstorm coming and I was in a panic. And one of my friend's boyfriend saw me and everyone at my school knew my situation. No dating. You can't be alone with a, a man in, the, in any situation. And they were all very nice and respectful of me. And he said that he could take me to my parents' restaurant and drop me off a couple blocks away so that they would not know that I was in the car with him alone. And I said, sure, that'd be great. So we approach the car and I start to get in and I hear a voice very clearly say, no safety belts. And I thought, what was that? And I looked down and I heard it again. It was no safety belts. And so I asked my friend, I said, why doesn't your car have a safety belt? And he said, well, it was grandfathered in. He didn't have to have that. And as little as I knew, I thought that meant the grandfathers didn't like safety belts. So I got in the car thinking, I don't know why grandfathers don't like safety belts, but I really did need to get home. And on the way home, of course, my parents did find out that I was in a car with a boy because we got in a very bad car accident and I went through his front windshield. And without having a safety belt on, obviously I was hurt and injured. And that was a point in my life where I heard this voice and I could not explain it. And I told no one because I thought maybe someone would think I was crazy for hearing this voice. And so from that time that I heard the truth of the church and I was hearing my friends telling me truth until I heard that voice clearly warning me of danger, those were all baby steps that God was laying in place because I was going to get to a point in my marriage where I needed to recognize that voice of truth. And those were little baby steps in preparation for what God needed me to know with a concrete, without a shadow of a doubt, that I needed Him. Yeah, it was really just lots of whispers from God, right? Yes. So you do graduate high school now, and in your culture, marriage is an option at this point. Can you explain that? From the time you turn about 15 or 16, you start having people coming to your home, asking, can their son marry your daughter? Your families arrange these things. I had lots of my Afghan family that my parents were talking about, and I'd say no, because I had enough American in me that I didn't want to marry a cousin, but I had the Afghan pressure that you need to get married young. There was people at the mosque, even our imam, he would say that he would give my dad my weight in gold if I would marry his brother. And things like that were said to you from age 15, 16, all the way up. And I kept telling everybody no. And my dad was very frustrated with me because I was reaching graduation and I was not engaged. I was not promised to anyone. And I was showing signs of rebellion because after graduation, I turned 18 about a month later and I taught myself to drive. Up until that point, I had 
not been taught or permitted to drive. And so I taught myself to drive and I took my graduation money, uh, applied to community college myself. So I didn't even really ask my parents, can I go to college? I just did it. And then I went and got a job and that helped me pay for the second quarter. I literally was paying for each quarter by the work I did the quarter before. And so when I got to the point of my dad saying, you have to pick someone. When I was at college, I met a man from Pakistan and we were at college. And so there was always people around. So it was safe. My reputation was safe. I was very careful with my reputation. You do not want to bring shame on your family. You do not want to bring any kind of conflict. And so we started talking and I asked him three very important questions because he was showing interest in me. I was saying things like, well, do you want to live here or do you want to live there? And he said here. And for me, that was a good thing. And then I would say, well, do you want one wife or more than one wife? Because in our culture, we had that option. If before you get married, you say, I want to be the one and only wife. And he said, no, he definitely wanted just one wife. And so I thought, oh, that's a good thing. And my most important question was, can I keep going to college? And he said, yes. And see, lots of other Muslim men had said no. They okay. didn't want you to go to college or they didn't want you to drive or they wanted to go back home, things like that. And so by the year after high school, I was engaged. In our culture, they want you promised away quickly. So tell us about your marriage. I got married at 19 years old. And the day of our marriage, as, as our part of our custom, all the family has gathered. We've had several days of parties and I was left alone. You're supposed to reflect on who you are. You're leaving your home. One of my American friends was going to drive me to the ceremony and everyone else had gotten there and gathered. And as I was fixing my hair, I alone in the bathroom and I heard a voice say, don't do it. And I literally thought somebody was in this house. It was so clear. I thought there was a man in my house and I stuck my head out the door and I'm looking around and I'm thinking, hello, hello, is anyone there? And of course there wasn't. I was shaking because there was something about that. I was unnerved and I was thinking, what was that? And I asked my friend, did you hear anything? She said, no. I came back and started to brush my hair again and I heard a voice say one more time, don't do it. And by now I was gone, so scared of what I was hearing. I thought I'm going nuts. I'm nervous, this is wedding jitters. But the closer we drove to where our ceremony was, the more my heart pounded and I wanted to leave. And I was wearing a yellow gold colored silver kameez, which is a, a very heavy, soft silken fabric. And I remember thinking, I just want to take all this layers off and I just want to run down the highway. I just felt like I needed freedom and I needed it now. But I got there and I got out of the car and instead of running again, I did what I did in the high school bleachers, I froze. I didn't know what to do because my two feet in two different worlds, the Muslim part of me was, you're going through this no matter what. But the other part of me wanted to run as fast as I could run. And so I went down into the ceremony, looking through the windows at everybody in the hall and all their expectations of what they had for me. 
And I knew I couldn't disappoint them. I couldn't let them down. I couldn't bring shame on my family. And so I went through with something that my core of my being was saying, don't do it. And so I did get married that day. And within six months, very quickly figured out that he and I should never have been married. Mm -hmm. Marriage was rough when you're in two different worlds. Because up until that point, I struggled with being an American and being Afghan at the same time. But when you're married and you have the expectations, plus he was from Pakistan. So that's a whole nother perspective. And so we just were in conflict. And as time would go on, he would say things like, why aren't you obedient enough? Why don't you iron my socks and my blue jeans the way I want you to? Of course, I had enough American in me to think, who irons socks and who irons blue jeans? And it was such a simple question on my part, but on his part, he saw it as disobedience. And so again, there was this not being satisfied with an answer and him not understanding that I had enough American in me that I wasn't this perfect Muslim wife. And so the conflict grew and grew. And our first four years of marriage was not nice. And it was conflict. When I didn't do what I was told, there was a consequence. And at one point in my college career, he took me out of my college and put me in an all-girls college because that way I couldn't be around men. There was a conflict with me asking for homework help from a chemistry tutor. And he got very upset because he thought that wasn't an affair. But meeting a chemistry tutor after school to get help for an exam, from my perspective, was I needed help with an exam that was tomorrow. And so we had such conflicts. And what happened by him sending me to this all-girls college was it was a Catholic college. And there was nuns that were teaching these classes. And part of the curriculum was that you had to take philosophy and religion classes. So now I'm getting homework assignments to read the Bible. I'm getting homework assignments to explain and teach me things that I had never been exposed to. And one of the nuns in one of the classes told us to write about what we believe in. And she meant in Christianity. And I walked up to her after class and I said, ma'am, I don't believe in Jesus. What am I supposed to do for this paper? And she just was this sweet little older lady. And she looked up with me with a grin and a glow. And she stared mm -hmm. at me and paused. And she just, I look back now and I think of light. And she said, you write down what you believe in because she knew I was a Muslim, but she also knew the Lord. And I know she knew because she asked me to do something that I thought was so easy until I got home and I couldn't write anything down. Because at this point, I was disappointed in the marriage. I was disappointed in Islam. I had all these questions that were going unanswered. And the lacking that I felt was exposed when I couldn't put it on paper. Mm -hmm. I couldn't explain to her in an essay what I believed in. Because every time I started to write something, I thought, okay, I believe in Allah. And then I would have to explain why. And I'd be like, well, he doesn't answer my prayers because I've prayed for answers and they've never come. And it would be things like that. I'd say, I 
believe in the Quran, but by that point, every time I was opening that, it was confusing to me. I wasn't finding answers that I needed. And she knew that. And so when I came a couple days later to class and gave her that paper, she grinned at me and she said, how did that go? And I told her, not well. I said, I'm going to fail this paper. And she said, no, I think you just passed this paper. Oh. And I said, why? Wow. And she said, <laughs> because you searched. And I thought, but I didn't get an answer. Mm-hmm. And she said, no, you'll get there. She knew because of her relationship with Christ that I was searching and I needed some answers. And then by the time I got pregnant, I was studying nutrition and we were supposed to do clinicals in nursing homes and being newly pregnant. Every time I would go do clinicals, I was so ill and just absolutely uh, sick. I couldn't smell the smells and be around the foods and that kind of thing. And so my teachers told me, just take the semester off when you're done having the baby. Whenever you feel better, come back. And I never got to come back Mm -hmm. because I got home. I had a hard pregnancy, a very hard delivery. And the way we grow up in the Afghan culture, you don't learn things from your mother. You don't learn things from your aunts or sisters, things like that. And Wait, you don't learn things? No, you okay. don't. Nobody explained to me, oh, you're, this is what you should do when you're in labor. Oh. This is how things should go. I never took classes like the Lamaze classes or things like this is how you should even breathe. That kind of thing. You just go. Mm. You go do it. You quietly do it. You endure it. You come home. You talk about nothing, that kind of thing. And so I was a terrible breastfeeder. And my little girl was a terrible breastfeeding child. And so it was traumatic every time she wanted to eat. And she was maybe four to six weeks old, somewhere in there. And I finally get this little baby latched on. And she is finally eating. And she had been crying. And I had been crying. And my husband was sitting in the living room watching TV. And he said, get up and get a drink of water for me. And without thinking, I said, get up and get your own drink of water. And that should never have come out of my mouth because he blew up and things were flying around the house. Mm. And he got very upset and he got down in my face and pointing at me and yelling in my face. And after such a rage said, I'm going to raise my daughter to obey me because your father did not do a good enough job. You do not obey your husband. And that went to my core because I felt like my whole life, all I did was obey what I was being told. I obeyed what to say in prayers and I obeyed what I was supposed to do and when to get married and how to do this and how to do that. And that disappointment broke me But as I sat there feeding this baby girl, I kept looking into her beautiful eyes. Hmm. And this little baby looked up at me and I couldn't help holding a daughter and thinking, I want you to have a hope and a future. I want you to have more than I have ever had. And I don't want you to have to be in a place where you have given everything and tried your hardest, but it's still not good enough. Wow. And I wanted for her something 
And that's where I decided when she was that little, I'm going to leave. It was an unsafe situation. I'm getting out because I wanted more for her than I wanted anything ever. And so from that point on, I would, you can't keep your own money, things like that. So I would tuck away grocery money. He'd give you cash for groceries. So I tuck some money away a little here, a little there. I would hide things in the home in a way that I could find them. He couldn't find them and break them and throw them and things like that and tuck away her baby pictures. And I was trying to make a plan. And right after her first birthday, I went to my parents quietly without him and said that I want to get a divorce. And I had done this for the six years that we were married. I'd go about every six months going, I need to get out. And my parents would tell me all the reasons I can't and I would be sent home. And so this time I went and I said, I'm leaving, can I come here? And I know God had to have influenced them because they said yes. And so at that point, I went back home to my husband and told him that I want to divorce. And he got so extremely upset. He was throwing things and yelling and so upset because it was going to bring shame on him as a man in Islam, but also for me, for my family. But I wasn't thinking about that. And he was so angry that I called my father and I said that you need to come up here. I don't know what to do. He's so angry. You need to come and you need to help me. And my dad actually did. He drove up a thousand miles. It was an unsafe situation. My dad came up. He owned our house that we were living in. He told my husband that he needed to leave, that he is no longer welcome there. I was trying to do it the right way in Islam by involving my father. Mm -hmm. And my husband was so angry that he did not want to leave. And we literally argued and argued and argued. And so my dad stayed up there and for a week, my husband and my father would argue and he did not leave. And in that time frame, because it was so upsetting, because it was so much anger and violence in the home, I didn't realize how sick I was. My dad had to go home to go back to work. And I went to the doctor thinking I had the stomach flu. In that time frame, I wasn't paying attention to myself and my own body and what was happening. And I went to the doctor, he wasn't my regular doctor, and he said that, okay, honey, we'll check everything. We'll check you for the flu. And he went away and he came back after I had done some blood tests and things. And he came back in and just beaming and was all excited to tell me that, no, it wasn't the stomach flu, that I was pregnant. And I took one look at this sweet man and I just burst into tears. And that was the first time I had told anyone what was going on in my world other than my mother and my father. And I told him, I'm about to get divorced. I've asked my husband to leave. I can't be pregnant with a second child. And I just burst into tears. And that doctor was substituting for my doctor that day. And he was a believer in Christ Jesus. And he sat there and he prayed with me. He prayed for protection for my children. He prayed for me to know who Jesus was. And I left there with no medicine, but the best healing I could have ever gotten because I, I got truth. 
and it was poured into me by this sweet believer in Christ Jesus. And I went home with the idea of, well, I had such a rough first pregnancy that I have to stay married now because how am I going to afford insurance? I don't have a job. It's going to have to be a C-section. I've already been told that. So I'm in turmoil. And for three days, I tried my hardest to stay in this marriage. And during those three days, he would walk in a room and I found myself unable to breathe. And I associated the breathing and the not breathing with peace and no peace. And I kept thinking, I have no peace when he walks in and I have peace when he walks out. I called my dad, he came back again. This time he kicked my husband out. We went to tell my Afghan family what was going on because my father thought they would at least help and support since he was a thousand miles away. And so he gathers everybody and three out of the four cousins my father had raised since I was four. So they were more like my older brothers than they were a first cousin. Mm -hmm. And so they gathered around and my dad asked me to stay in the other room and I had my one-year-old daughter with me and he was telling everybody what was going on and the arguing started. She can't shame our family. We've never had someone in our family get divorced. You can't do this. She must have done something. What did she do? We can help her make amends. All this kind of stuff. He's such a great person. There's no way she could do this to him. This is my family, but everything in defense of him I was so hurt by that because I kept thinking, but I didn't do anything. And I walked in the room and they stopped talking. They wouldn't even talk to me. And one of them was saying that I was going to bring shame on the family, that I would be the first one to bring divorce and they would not allow it. And then I had one cousin who was especially close to me that I just adored. And he said, you can't be a single parent. You can't shame our family and be pregnant and be a single parent. You have to have an abortion. Mm. And there was like a freeze in my heart because I never really tackled that subject of abortion. I never thought about it really. But at that moment when you're pregnant and you're holding your little girl and you're thinking, I could never do something to this child within me and look at my daughter and say, you would have had a sibling someday, but I didn't want to bring shame on my family. I just blurted out, I'm pregnant, and he's yelling at me for the abortion, and so much was going on that my father said, we need to leave. And I went out that door from a home that I loved being in and was my second favorite place to be and was always welcomed. Hmm. to going out this door and it slamming so hard behind them that to this day, I haven't had conversations or seen the people in this room, only one or two of them. They have nothing to do with me because Hmm. to keep the honor of the family was more important than to have anything to do with the person that brought shame to the family. Wow! So when I got to a place where I knew I've got to leave. I have to be brave. I have to trust that somehow I can have this baby and not have insurance. I didn't know how any of this worked. I told my dad. My dad told him. He said, get out. He went away for a couple more days. My dad left. He came back. There was a big argument between him and I, and he was throwing things. And I called my brother because I was so frightened of what was going on. My brother said, I can't be there 
It'll take me 20 minutes. And in my panic and fear, I called another Muslim friend who was from Pakistan, married to an American. He came over within five minutes and he came in at the same time as my brother, which my brother must have been driving so fast. Hmm. And my brother took my husband downstairs and the friend came upstairs and sat with me. And that was the point in which things were revealed to me in my marriage that I did not know. He thought we're getting divorced because I had found out things. This Pakistani friend was thinking, I knew nothing about this other stuff. Hmm. And so that's where I got to the place where I was desperate. I didn't know what was real and what wasn't real anymore. I just reached a place where I didn't know what to do. And in my desperation, I slid down a wall and prayed a prayer that just was from the inside of me to God who I was hope was listening to me. Yeah. Could you read page 74? Okay. I remember saying something like this. I need to talk to God, the God, the one who made me God. I need to talk to God that made me and that made the trees and made the universe. I need to talk to the God of the universe. You are the one that I wish to talk to. My name is Shahi and you may or may not know me, but I am in a lot of trouble right now and I have no idea what to do and I have no idea what to say. And I have no idea how to get out of the place that I am in. I need you. Not any other God, but you, the one who made me. I need your help, and I need your help now. Please. Sorry, we left you at a cliffhanger. To hear what happened after Shahi's very first prayer to the God who made her, you're just going to have to tune in next week. You've got to join us to hear about her secret shopping trips to a church, saying yes to Jesus and the mysterious good job man. If you never want to miss a 180, make sure to join our mailing list. The link is in our show notes. One Eighty is a production of One Way Ministries.